Today we are starting a new series called Come Follow Me. Um, this is going to run through the next couple of months. And today I'm not going to talk very much about that verse. This is kind of an introduction to that series. Um, and you will see towards the end uh, where that's going. Um, it is the new year. And so it's usually New Year's resolution time around this. Anyone made any resolutions yet? Anyone broken any resolutions yet? It's only the seventh day of January, but New Year does seem to be a time, doesn't it, when people are looking for, a, it's a natural time to look for a fresh start, using this moment of the year to make a change, to maybe commit to a new diet or a new habit or a new hobby. Um, Chris, who works for a gym, will tell you that the gym memberships are soaring right now, and it's Chris's absolute mission to keep people signed up beyond January to the gym. Whether they come or not is by the by, but he needs to keep them signed up <laughs> so that they get their money. You get me? Because he works for a gym. Anyway, the truth is often, isn't it, that despite our best intentions, we still have the same ingrained bad habits that we had at the end of 2023. And so therefore, making a real change takes a bit more than just signing up for something or making a start. I think it really is important to make sure that we have a good vision for a change and then we work to reorientate our behavior and our passion around that vision and that means realigning our hearts and our minds and our habits towards a goal which is really worthwhile which is good and beautiful and noble and sometimes I wonder if what we're trying to do in the new year is just make a superficial change without really really considering the big goals and truthfully we can get really busy we can have a surge of energy but the effort doesn't lead us to becoming the kind of people that we actually want to be because the goals are coming perhaps from our culture, from the world around us, rather than from the source of life. And the vision we're pursuing is one which we see all around, but not necessarily one which we find in the Bible. And so the questions we need to be asking at the start of this year are, what is the vision that I am pursuing for my life? Am I trying to become a better person by working harder or getting a promotion? Am I aiming for a more comfortable existence, a nicer house, a better location? Am I pursuing popularity or power or influence? Or am I just cultivating a beach body for the summer holidays? Even more importantly, how is the pursuit of these goals affecting the things that are really important, the relationships I have with those around me, the friends and family I have? How is it impacting my stress level, my mental health, my spiritual health? And everybody does have a vision Everyone is following something or someone. As John Tyson puts it here, the question is not whether you will live in a certain way and follow someone, but rather which way are you living and who are you ultimately following and where is that person leading you? And so as we begin 2024, I want to unashamedly present to you Jesus's vision for life, who Jesus says God is, what the kingdom of God really means and what we are invited to take part in when we, when we say that we're going to follow him. Now, if you've never explored what Jesus says about God and his kingdom, or you're just checking out faith or what it really means to be a Christian, then hopefully this will be helpful for you. You're very welcome. And I'd love to chat some more afterwards. If you have been following Jesus for some time, then I hope this will be a helpful and a timely reminder of some of the fundamental biblical truths that we believe about the nature of God, about how we understand and interpret the Bible and how we live that out. 
And particularly, and this has already been mentioned a couple of times this morning, if you are going through difficult situations right now, then I hope it will give us just a bigger and wider perspective and some encouragement. You know, we talked about the hope of the Christmas story in, in December. We talked about the hope that God brings to a crazy world. And some of us are already approaching this year with anxiety because despite a break for Christmas and the potential of a new year, we still have significant challenges, be that around physical mental health or family or employment or finance or relationships. If that's you, I want to encourage you that God is with you, that he has something to say about that and that we as a church community also want to be here to support and to pray and to help in any practical ways we can. So I'm not looking at one particular Bible verse this morning, but I will be looking at several. And just to say that much of this book, no, much of this talk is taken from a really brilliant book by a man called John Tyson called Kingdom Vision. Um, I'm particularly taking the first, the second chapter um, this morning, but, but it's a, if you want to dig into this more, I, I thoroughly recommend this. So Jesus' vision of God, you know, if you were to sort of sum up the whole of what Jesus says about God in the Gospels, if you were to kind of really kind of capture that, I think it breaks down into three really clear distinctives. Jesus presents a detailed picture of God and who he is, God and his kingdom. Who is God, the nature of God, what he is like, and what his kingdom means. Then, he pres- then at the same time, and in parallel with that, Jesus also makes an announcement that this kingdom has arrived. And finally, he offers an invitation to follow him and to become his disciples as part of that kingdom. And it's really important that we fully understand the, full, the implications of this about who Jesus is really saying God is. You know, over the years, many believers have lived from a place of limited understanding and limited revelation of who God really is. Now, that's, I get that. The Bible's hard to interpret, but we've all put our own interpretations on it as well. The author Tozer writes about how our vision of God, what we, how we see God, how that impacts everything we do on a personal level and on a society level. And unless we have a beautiful, compelling and accurate vision of God, we will live our lives honouring the messed up, broken, vague musings about God that we just carry around inside our head. And that's going to limit us. And Jesus didn't just teach his disciples about the nature of God. He tried to impart to them the heart of God. He made sure that they really grasped who God was and what his kingdom was and what they were invited to partner in. And you can read the stories for yourselves in the Gospels. There were incredible results. I mean, we wouldn't be here if he hadn't have done that. So what kind of God did Jesus describe? The first thing Jesus described is he described a triune God. Now, triune is a fancy word that means three in one. And what Jesus taught is that the nature of God is as a father and son and spirit. The early church coined this word trinity, but triune means the same thing. It means how Jesus described God. And that is truly distinctive. Among the religions of the world, Christianity is the only faith to make this claim that God is one and yet there are three who are God. And so you can read that in the Bible that Jesus described the Father as God. I'm not going to read all those verses, but there's a couple of passages there from Matthew 26. You know, look at the birds of the air. The heavenly Father feeds them. He describes the, 
the God as the Father of the Lord of heaven and earth. And he describes himself also to be God. He says, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I was there before the beginning of the world. I and the Father are one. Okay, so Jesus describes God as Father. Jesus describes himself as God. And then he describes and speaks of the coming of the Spirit of God. He says, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. And the advocate, the Spirit is coming. The Father will send him in my name. So this is Jesus making these distinctive claims. Among the religions of the world, Christianity is the only religion to make this claim that God is one and yet there are three. And this is really important because it reveals the relational nature of God. It shows that God is a God of love and humility, that within the Godhead, these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are forever, forever loving and serving one another. And the implications of that are that God does not need us to love and serve him to make him feel better. He is already involved in relationship of love and service and fulfilled within it. But he invites us to join in. He invites us. He doesn't need us to legitimize him or to keep him company or to meet his needs, but he invites us because he loves us and he created us and he wants us to take part. And an author called Michael Reeves talks about this and he said that, he points out that single person gods having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings. And so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. Surely it would be a distraction from their self-centeredness. And anything they do create, and you can read these myths and stories for yourselves, seems to be out of a need or a desire for their own gratification. You will never see that with a triune God because he is never lonely and he has been loving for all of eternity. And therefore, loving other people is not strange or unnatural for him. It's the root of who he is. And Jesus describes the nature of each part of God to give us a clear vision of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He calls God Abba, or Daddy, which is a term of endearment and describes a father who is merciful and loving and holy and righteous and just. And he tells parables about God where the father is likened to a judge or a master or a shepherd or a business owner or a farmer or the host of a banquet or a father. And Jesus himself modeled intimacy with and obedience to that father and taught his disciples. When you pray, pray to the father and ask for what they need, trusting that he will hear and provide. He teaches that taught that intimacy with the father was not reserved for just a privileged few special people over here. It's for anyone, all who would come to him through the son. And Jesus claimed that he and the Father were one. And having, him having always existed, always since before time. He radically described himself as the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that describe the Messiah and the servant of the Lord. And in his parables, Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd, the Bridegroom, the Vine, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, the Door, and the Resurrection and the Life. And Jesus taught his disciples about how rebirth and renewal comes through the work of the Holy Spirit, who he called the helper, 
and the advocate is there in that passage. He promised that when the Holy Spirit come, they will receive power so they could witness and perform miracles in his name. You see, Jesus' vision of God is central to his vision of life, his message of salvation, his vision of the kingdom, and his vision for discipleship. And he describes this triune God. And he also describes a God who redeems, who rescues people. He explains how the God of God's plan to redeem and save and rescue his world and restore it is only possible because of the work of God through these three persons. And here are some verses from John chapter 14. Okay, let's read this to you. I'll read this through to you. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. And whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. And anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. All of this I have spoken while I'm still with you, he says to his disciples. But when I leave, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, there's a lot in there. But hopefully you can see how these three persons are inextricably tied together and linked and so necessary to fulfill the work that Jesus is doing. As disciples of Jesus, we have a father who chooses us and initiates a plan of salvation because of his deep love for us. We have a saviour, Jesus, the son of God who came to earth to identify with us and to live and die in our place and win the victory over Satan, over death and over hell. And we have a spirit sent by the father to all who follow Jesus, who gives us life, who bears witness that we are God's children and empowers us to live for him. Our whole salvation is contained in the love of the Father and the grace of the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Can you see how connected these things are? And in fact, Jesus of God, Jesus' vision of God compels him to go further than to commission his disciples to bring his good news to the world. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. And he sends them out, not in their own strength, not in our own strength, but in the power of the Spirit, whom the Father sends to empower the Son's disciples. Can you see how connected these things are? Can you see how important it is that we understand the full picture of God so that we understand how we are saved and how we are commissioned. Jesus' vision of God is so important. And it's the complete package. And if we choose to live in the way of Jesus, then what we have to do is wholeheartedly adopt his vision of the Father and the Son himself and the Spirit. And understanding that nature of God, his love and mercy and compassion is so central to the choices we make about how we live our lives. I used to say to people, I've often said to people, you know, people have this idea that God is some kind of strict head teacher. That he's waiting there with a tick list, a checklist, <coughs> Okay, that he's, that he's making sure that we 
fulfill the criteria, that we get the qualifications, that we do the stuff that we need to do. But essentially, God is not that at all. He's a father, and he's good, and he's kind, and he's gracious and merciful. And those of you who have been here a long time will remember Hugh Cryer, who um, started this church, who used to say he's a, a good God in a good mood who wants to do good things. And we miss that sometimes because our vision of God isn't that big. We've, our vision of God shapes our understanding of the gospel, our identity as who we are, children of God, and our perspective on the church and our passion for mission and for moving in the power of God. And sometimes we bring to this thing perceptions that just aren't correct. Either we don't know the half of it or we don't choose to believe it about ourselves. And I wonder if this morning God might want to flag up to us that we might not have a completely accurate and full picture or perspective in terms of our own vision of God. There's a great kids song by a guy called Doug Hawley and it's called Have We Made Our God Too Small? And um, I remember being taught it by somebody and they taught, they taught us the actions and, um, and they were doing little boxes in the actions or they were doing big boxes going down to little boxes and it was like this, big box. Have we made our God too small, too small? Have we made... And, um, well, anyway, um, I just it stuck in my mind because I think sometimes we are really guilty of making God small in our own minds when actually he's huge. So that's Jesus, that's Jesus' description, this picture of what God is and who God is. And I said there's a second part, which is Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God. You know, right at the start of his ministry, almost the first thing Jesus said in public was this, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Another thing he said was, seek first the Father's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. You see, the kingdom of God was absolutely central to Jesus' message. The call that he made was for people to act in response to its imminent arrival. But what was the kingdom of God that he was talking about, and why was its arrival so crucial? Now, we struggle with the word kingdom, I think. We don't really have a concept in our day and age of what a kingdom is. But Dallas Willard helpfully describes it like this. He says, a kingdom is like the range of effective will, where the appointed king over whatever that kingdom is has the right to rule and the power to make his or her dreams a reality. Let me say that again. The kingdom is, a kingdom is a range of effective will where the appointed king has both the right to rule and the power to make their dreams a reality. And in that sense, a kingdom could be massive or small. It could be geopolitical or local. It could be a physical piece of land or just an arena of life. So in the modern world, you might also include the kingdoms of Google and Apple or Elon Musk or whoever else other powerful influence who seem to have a lot of ability to make things happen within their own kingdom. But the kingdom of God, and for first century Jews, the, the phrase kingdom of God meant God's rule and reign on earth. When they heard that phrase, the kingdom of God, they were thinking of a time where God's will would be perf perfectly executed and fulfilled in human society within creation at large. But the truth is that the kingdom of God isn't the only kingdom at play because there's a kingdom of the world which Jesus um, was directly opposed to and was confronting as soon as he started his ministry. 
The kingdom of God was an alternative, but the kingdom of the world isn't just a geopolitical kingdom like the Roman Empire or something. It's a kingdom in spiritual terms. It's described in the Bible as Satan's kingdom. And that's why Jesus announced his opposition to it. And the really radical part of this whole kingdom deal is that essentially every other kingdom, every other worldview, every other culture other than the kingdom of God will place at its centre the love of self. And the love of self, putting me at the centre, goes against everything that God created humanity for. And so Satan, there's a picture up there, I'm not sure that Satan, I don't know how Satan looked, but I thought it was quite a dramatic picture. Um, When tempting Jesus in the wilderness, demands that Jesus would bow down to him. Worship me, he says, and I'll give you all this. And of course, Jesus doesn't do that. Satan wants to be, wanted to be, still wants to be the center of his own universe. And the truth is that left to our own devices, so do we. We kind of live in this thing where we want to be the center of our universe. That was his primary sin. It's the whole of humanity's primary sin. It's, that's what kicked off with, back in the garden with Adam and Eve. The, the, the love of self is at the center of everything that isn't to do with Jesus. And I've got a question for you, just a simple question. Based on what we know from the evidence of history, does the worship and the love of self generally produce good things and healthy things? And the answer, I think, based on the evidence of history is no. Well, why not? And there are three realities that come into play here because one of them is the reality of limited power. You see, although we might wish for it, we are never ultimately in control of our own lives. Not every ruler can control all their subjects. No one can control the natural elements. There are just too many variables. And attempts at ultimate control usually will only lead to greater anxiety and greater anger. There's also the evidence of relationships. What happens when two people who both want to be in charge of their own kingdoms interact with each other or attempt an ongoing relationship, be that as family or friends or work colleagues or lovers? There's a clash of kingdoms, right? Anybody experience this in their lives or is it just me? You know what I'm talking about, a clash of kingdoms. Where do you want to eat? What washing up powder do we want to buy? How do we manage money? How do we raise children best? How do we work through forgiveness? How do we govern a city? What's the best way to lead a country? When humans are determined to get their own way, conflict occurs, and that usually means ugly, backstabbing, rude, unforgiveness, pain, rejection, and heartache. And then you've got the evidence of empires. You see, despite all those natural, uncontrolled variables, every generation produces a few people who always manage to accumulate more power and control than they need, becoming kings or emperors or dictators or presidents or CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies. And despite certain cultural assumptions or philosophies that would suggest that these people are best placed to create a world around them to make them really happy and satisfied and maybe even a world for everybody else around them that's better, the reality is that most of the time the opposite is true, isn't it? 
And the selfishness that's in the heart of every human is simply magnified when that power, when that human has a greater level of power or control or wealth or influence. And so emperors send out armies to search for more power. Dictators get obsessed with control and the worship of their citizens. And CEOs prove their net worth by buying bigger houses and bigger private jets. When leaders cling to power, the people and the nations under them invariably suffer. I will never forget Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury's quote at the Queen's funeral. He said, people of loving service are rare in any walk of life. Leaders of loving service are still rarer. But in all cases, those who serve will be loved and remembered when those who cling to power and privileges are forgotten. And I'm not quite sure where his eyes were going at that point when he was speaking in Westminster Abbey, but I have a good idea in my head. It's not just about the people at the top putting self first. Many individuals in all walks of life choose to make decisions based on self-interest at the cost of others, which leads to selfishness and envy taking root and becoming institutionalized, which leads to systematic oppression, injustice, racism, and all of the chaos and carnage and trouble that we see around us. And all of this has at its root the selfishness which Satan unleashed into the world, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of self. And you can read that verse there in James 3, which just talks about this. He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. This is the happy part of today's talk, okay? I promise you it gets better. Because that's the kingdom of the world. And as I said, when Jesus came, he came in direct opposition to that to present the kingdom of God, which puts not the self at the center, but God at the center. And not some single selfish God, but a triune God of all three persons in loving relationship with each other, where every one of them loves and serves the others, just as Jesus demonstrated when he was interacting with Satan in the wilderness. No person of the Trinity ever seeks to steal power from one of the others. They are one in every sense of the word. And God's kingdom, it's not about the powerful and the selfish and the envious who succeed. It's about the blessed of the poor in spirit. It's about those who are mourning, those who are meek, those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. You see, God's kingdom has been described as an upside-down kingdom. The truth is, the world is the upside-down bit. God's kingdom is the right way up. And when Jesus comes on the scene, his message is God's kingdom of mercy and humility and goodness and love and submission is at hand and it's breaking into the world, into the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of self. The fundamental message of Christianity are that there are two ways to live and we have a choice to make. We can choose the way of self, which leads to brokenness and disorder and culture in our hearts and in culture and in the world at large, or we can choose the way of Jesus which leads to peace, reconciliation, sacrificial love and humility and ultimately produces a new creation. And Jesus announces the inbreaking of this kingdom and he invites all to take part, 
to be citizens of heaven instead of citizens of the world. And he starts by calling for repentance, meaning a total change of mind, leading to a total change of life. He's calling us to a reorientation of our will, of our hearts, of our emotions, of our desires. It's not enough simply to turn away from the kingdom of Satan and self. The invitation is to turn towards the kingdom of God with all of our mind and our will and our heart and our life vision and to acknowledge that God is king of our whole lives. And while this announcement by Jesus presents a major threat to Satan's evil powers, it presents a welcome for many, many people who have been trapped by the cruelty and the oppression and the bondage that comes with the culture that we live in. Jesus redefines what it takes to gain entry into God's kingdom. It's not based on lineage. It's not based on personal righteousness or power or status or wealth. It's only on rebirth through faith in Jesus and renewal by the Spirit. He doesn't demand that we try harder or that we remain sinless. He instead shows that God has already won the victory and we are welcome to repent and believe. All are welcome. Living in the way of Jesus is first and foremost about grabbing hold of... Oh, I've got this here, sorry. Here's a quote from John Tyson again. Living in the way of Jesus is first and foremost about grabbing hold of Jesus' kingdom vision. It's about letting go of our own kingdoms, the kingdoms of our hearts, and inviting Jesus to be the king of our lives. And through this act of faith, we are invited into God's kingdom and learn to adopt his vision for the world. We've talked about Jesus' presentation of who God is and what his kingdom is. We've talked about his announcement of that kingdom. And the third part is the invitation, his invitation to discipleship. This passage is from Mark, and it's where Jesus calls his first disciples. He says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Have you ever seen that program, The Chosen? I love the way in that program, it's kind of artistic and they've added, they've filled in some, sort of they've imagined some gaps that aren't really there in the text, but you have to sort of imagine. But the way that they've told this story and lead up to this point, I think is absolutely brilliant. It does take a little bit of a while to get going. It's about the fourth episode by the time you get to this. And so you are wondering through the first couple of episodes what's going on and who's, what's, who is who. But I, if you've not watched it, I promise you, have a look. I think it's free on Netflix now. But um, you can find it online anyway. This part where they choose to follow him, it's, it's, it's beautifully done. Anyway, verse 19, when he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, Jesus calls his disciples with a very specific invitation. And a really helpful and memorable way to sum this up would be to use this text, which is from the Berean Standard Bible. It's a translation of the Bible. And this is the text we're going to use over the next few weeks. And it's this, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the call isn't just for those first disciples. It's an invitation to all of us. And over the next six to eight weeks, we're going to break this down and look at each of these components of what it is 
to be a disciple of Jesus. So come follow me is a call to intimacy. We've used the phrase before now, be with Jesus. You know, following me, for, for Jesus to say, follow me, that's an unusual call. In his day, prophets would normally say, follow God. And rabbis or teachers would normally say, follow my teaching. But Jesus says neither. He says, follow me. He says, follow me because I am God. And he says, follow me because my life is the teaching. And he modeled intimacy with God and invites us to do the same. To experience the love and the fellowship of the Trinity, to be part of that. And the next part of the call is, I will make you. And that's a call to transformation or to becoming like Jesus. Now, a disciple would always walk very closely with their rabbi. They would live with them pretty much day and night. It wasn't just about gaining knowledge. It was about life transformation and modeling. We often, you know, in the, in the modern world, we use the phrase apprentice because it's a kind of modern image. It's not perfect, but it's the closest phrase we can get because you're not just learning how to do something. You're learning how to live. Those of you who are um, perhaps in your uh, early 20s or uh, late teens who are um, perhaps who are studying, um, I've had this conversation with a number of people. You know, one of the things I always say to students is when you go away to university or to college or wherever you're going to go, remember that you've been so far formed by the people in your community and now you need to think about who's investing in your life and speaking into your life and forming you for the next few years. And it's really good to be proactive and make a good decision about that. When you think, when you, if you do go off to university or college or whatever, think about the church that you're going to attend and don't go to the one with the nicest pizza or the best worship or the best coffee. Go to the one where you see people who you want to be like. Because that's how you grow, by following the people that you want to be like. And that's how we grow in discipleship to Jesus by being his apprentice. And we read of many people, actually, who followed Jesus, not just the 12 disciples that are the sort of well-known ones, but other people in and around the story of Jesus in the Gospels who encountered Jesus and then effectively chucked in their old life and threw their lot in with him. Mary and Martha, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. I will make you, is talking about a transformation of the heart, the mind and the soul and the strength to become more like Jesus. And then fishers of men which is a commission to go, to do the things that Jesus did. Now, this term, fishers of men, seems a bit random. It was a common phrase used in Jesus' time, and it was used to describe philosophers and other teachers who would capture men's minds. They would be seen to be baiting the hook through their sort of um, slick teaching and persuasion and then catching disciples but Jesus doesn't want to train philosophers and teachers. He wants to train fishermen and women and outcasts, ordinary, everyday people who in that culture nobody else was paying attention to. You know, Peter and John were pretty normal, average, local fishermen with regional accents who probably never really went out of their area, Galilee, apart from perhaps to Jerusalem once a year for a festival. But in Acts, we read about Peter and John before the council of, um, and before all the sort of Sadducees. And what it said of them, it says, these, these are ordinary unschooled men. 
And yet, through the power of the Spirit, they changed the world. And Jesus had taught them that the spiritual life is not one that you just do alone. It's not one that you do just internally with your mates. It's something that spills out into the whole world. This is all about following Jesus in a way that others can follow. And others can still become like Jesus. And if we do that, we find that Jesus offers an expanded life. You know, John became the bishop of Ephesus. And Peter became the bishop of Rome. And Andrew went pretty much to the edge of Russia. They became, I can't read my own writing. They became teachers, they became psychologists and strategists and theologians and pastors and all because of the gospel. And the, the, the question today is what's the call for us? What is the call for us truly? How will we respond to this presentation of who God is and who his kingdom is? You see, we are invited to step into a story that's bigger than us bigger than our earthly vision, bigger than the broken world that we live in, Jesus can take something stunning and beautiful. Sorry, Jesus can make something stunning and beautiful out of our lives, no matter what our background, no matter what our challenges are. Dallas Willard says, Jesus is taking students in the masterclass of life. And I wonder what that means for us in 2024. Now, I said to you that what I was going to say was three things. A detailed picture of the kingdom of God. That he's a, God, a triune God who redeems people. An announcement that kingdom of, the kingdom has arrived. And the invitation to follow him. And the next seven or eight weeks, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What we're going to do right now is we're going to go into just communion together. So why don't we just be quiet for a minute? And why don't we just pause and ask the Holy Spirit if there's anything that he just wants to say to us right now.